Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is founder of Fuck Being Humble, and this might help, Stephanie Sword-Williams. Steph's story is full of tenacity and care. She shares the importance of focusing on how to forget perfectionism and decenter yourself. This episode is sponsored by Payhawk. Growing a business from a startup to a scale-up comes with many challenges. One way to solve this is to introduce effective systems at the right time. Payhawk, a corporate card and expenses management solution for scale-ups, have literally transformed many lives at Astrid and Mew since implementing earlier this year. To simplify, Payhawk combines company cards, reimbursable expenses, accounts payable, and seamless accounting software integrations into a single product that can be used globally. In this episode, Steph and I discuss overcoming imposter syndrome and becoming more confident. Financial fluency is something many business owners need to overcome. With Payhawk, we had a hands-on onboarding experience with a dedicated specialist building out the bespoke workflows, which meant the team felt super confident. Hi, Steph. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. So you are very well known for your slogan, your brand, and your business, Fuck Being Humble. But I don't think a lot of people know about you as Stephanie Sword-Williams. Tell me about you and tell our audience about you. So I love this question, first of all, because I think so many people always ask me about my business, but maybe not always behind what's happening in their brand. Yeah. So for me personally, I am a founder, I'm an author, I'm a public speaker, I'm a caregiver, I'm someone that always wants to look after and support people. And I think I was put on this planet to tell stories that are going to have a positive impact in the world. Oh, I love that. So where does this all come from? I guess for me, I worked in advertising to start with, and I always loved telling stories. I mean, right from when I was like a teenager, people used to be like, you're going to have a chat show one day, you're going to be doing something that's creative and working with people. And I think naturally, just through education, you end up feeling like you have to take a certain path or you have to go in a certain direction. And then when I started listening to more of what I wanted to do, which was public speaking and was meeting new people and getting to do incredible chats like this, I actually started to kind of reposition myself and do more of what I love. So yeah. that's always been my focus is coming back to like what makes me actually happy rather than feeling like I need to follow a path like everyone else. Yeah, that's so inspiring. How did that journey happen from advertising to uh, now a well-known public speaker? Tell me about that journey. Did you like, was it like a light bulb moment or did it happen gradually? So when I first moved to London, I didn't know anybody. I had zero contacts. I had nobody who could make introductions or open any doors for me. But I was adamant that I wasn't going to let that stop me. And so I used to go to loads of networking events, generally by myself, which I always recommend people should do. And in doing that, I met lots of amazing people. And I kept going to these great events, but I kept on seeing the same types of conversations, the same types of people leading the stages. And I felt like there was a space where possibly younger, um, more creative, diverse voices could be celebrated and spotlighted. And I said to myself, like, what if I were to create an event series or a community or something where we embraced self-promotion, we gave people the chance to do that, but we also celebrated people for being proud of themselves. 
But I knew there was quite a lot of work to do before I could create this vision. And so I just did what most people do. I, I started making some sort of a proposal and I was listening to my inspirational R&B playlist. So it's usually consists of like Eve and Gwen Stefani saying, let me blow your mind. Or it's like Missy Elliott, Ain't No Shame, Girl Do You Thing and all these lyrics. Oh, I, and I, I was sat there and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we created a brand that took influence from cultural moments, icons, things that made career advice just more accessible and mm. more enjoyable and it was through this process that I decided I wanted to create something that was completely different to what was out there already and when I worked in advertising I always loved disruptive advertising shock tactics challenger brands like I loved things that went against the grain so I knew that when I was building this movement and this community it was going to have something that had a real point of difference and so yeah it started with writing this proposal I remember it was in the Ace Hotel I was listening to my playlist I was oh, writing it all out yeah you. I was in the zone and and like most people I sat on the idea for like 11 months and I talked about it but didn't action yeah. it and then eventually I kind of plucked up the courage to start posting on Instagram and then it led on to all of the great things that I've since done. Yeah. And when you started this, did you still have your full-time career? Yes, I did. And I always make it really clear to people that I actually had no intention of leaving the advertising industry. I guess the first question you asked me is like, who is Steph? And I think because when I was working full-time, I felt like I'd become my job. I really wanted something outside of my work that that did represent me, that didn't have a brief and it didn't mm -hmm. have client restrictions or timelines or budget constraints. I wanted to create a persona outside of work that was my own version. And so that was the sort of the reason I, I wanted to start this and continue working full time because I still loved my job. Yeah, yeah. But so this, this was kind of your creative outlet. Totally. It was, yeah. a, it was a passion project. It was a side hustle. It was... It was really more about me getting the opportunity to do more public speaking because yeah. although in advertising you do a lot of sales and pitching, just naturally due to the hierarchy of businesses, as a young 25-year-old woman, I wasn't going to be the first person they were going to ask to go represent them at conferences and talks. And But I knew I had this great skill in me and I knew I was good at public speaking and I really wanted to explore that more. So it really was about, yeah, re-engaging with something that I've always had this burning desire to do and also from a personal perspective like I'd always dreamed about being a TED speaker and I remember saying to myself like advertising's great you're doing really well but is this going to get you that TED talk that you've always dreamed about and I think when I took a step away from that that was when I sort of said to myself what do I want to be known for what topics do I want to speak about how do I want to help people in their lives and if I was going to be invited to write a TED talk and speak one, what would it be about? And actually, that was one of those pivotal moments in my career that I often talk to people about of like, it was a moment where I wanted to reflect on what do I want in the next five to 10 years? And what am I actually doing to get there? Because so often we talk about all these great, I'd love to write a book or I'd love to do a podcast, but we don't position ourselves on the trajectory to get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a very important turning point for me to say, I love my job and I'm going to keep doing that, but I want to create something on the side that could continue to add to my reputation. Yeah, I love that you knew exactly what you wanted for yourself and you went for it. And when did you take that plunge as, like, as a full-time career and a business? So unfortunately for me, uh, my book was actually coming out in May 2020. And in the run-up to the book coming out for Fuck Being Humble, it was 
so busy, getting so many inquiries. Everything was building up. And to be honest, it was getting to that point where it's like, I actually can't manage the side hustle and mm. this anymore. And I felt like I owed it to myself to go try. So I quit my job in March 2020. I'd lined up six months worth of business. I'd done everything that everybody tells you to do before you make the leap. And literally overnight, I lost everything because of the pandemic and oh, budgets course. got cut and people weren't spending money. It was a completely different experience to what I thought I was going into. So I quit my job to be an international public speaker and all international events got cancelled. Oh, and so it looked a lot different and it consisted of me sitting at home, delivering webinars, talks. And although it was a terrible time to quit my job for live events, it was the time where everyone in the world needed career advice. Absolutely. So it was one of those moments where it's like, this isn't going to be the fairy tale start to the, the business, but this is going to be a really good development in the story and in, in the way that it grows. Yeah, it is such a good story. Yeah. And, I, and it was through that process of like, you know, my talks have reached people in over 50 countries now. The following went from like 5,000 to 25,000 in a year. And it was all organic. And there were so many things where I could see I was literally helping mm. change people's lives. Yeah at a time where everyone's feeling a crisis and overwhelm. So yeah. I don't think I would feel as confident as I do in my business now had I not have gone through that experience. So at the time it felt scary, but actually now I'm so glad because it was like a fundamental building block that has helped me understand how to structure my business and my own capabilities. Yeah, and it gives you resilience as a business person. Absolutely. I remember my mum said, if you can get through this point as a small business, you'll get through anything. And I think that was the message that I kept playing in my head. Uh, and, and I did so. Yeah. And where does fuck being humble come from? So for me personally, like many people, I worked extremely hard. I put in lots of effort. And then when it came to certain, I don't know, performance reviews or conversations of where I was anticipating more positive news, I didn't always get the, the response or the outcome that I was looking for. What was the feedback you got? Well, there were a few, um, yep, you're on track and you're going to get this. And then when we got to the meeting, it was like, oh, no, things have changed. And it was very often the narrative of like, you just need to keep doing this. It felt like this never ending mm. climb. And I often felt like, like many people, overlooked, unappreciated and undervalued. And I guess that's why the statement, fuck being humble, rings true to so many people. Because for so long, we've been told, stay humble, stay modest, and that's how you'll succeed. And Do I, you think that applies more to women? Well, I, I think it's even more of a problematic message to women, because naturally, in the way that we're wired, for whatever reason it may be, we, I, you know, I speak to women all the time about this topic and they struggle so much with understanding the balance between not being humble and being humble and trying to figure out the best approach to that. But I think for me personally, I wanted to think of a statement that empowered people to go get what they deserve, to not wait for things to fall into their lap, to not to not assume that your boss is watching your every move, to make sure that when you're in the room, you literally make the most of that and you don't miss out. And I think that's why it's been so successful is because it's a message that people really emotionally connect with. There's so many times in our lives where we've felt like we've had to play small or we, 
we should do in order to be respected. And actually what my business is doing is encouraging people to do the opposite. I think it's important to say though, of course I believe in being humble and of course I believe in modesty. But what I really struggle to see is people being so modest, they miss out on opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. You, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Yeah. Tell me a story in your personal life on when, you know, you walk the talk. Oh gosh, this is a great <laughs> question. I mean, every day I have to... I'm the only person in my business. So there's nobody else that supports any part of the business. The only thing I outsource is my finances to my accountant because just not my strong part. So I guess I have to be present and I have to make the most of every opportunity at every time. And one of the stories I love sharing the most is when I first started Fuck Being Humble, I was at a networking event and the tech broke and they said, does anybody want to stand up and share something they're working on? And it was only literally like two, three weeks old. And I stood up in front of a room full of 100 people and said, hi, I've started this new community. It's called Fuck Being Humble. Help people with self-promotion. And I really want to help people advocate for themselves. I'd love you all to follow it on social media. And I got 100 new followers in that room. And then the woman behind me tapped my shoulder and said, I love what you're doing. Um, it turns out she was working for Cannes Lions Festival, which is a massive advertising creative festival, very well respected and very hard to speak at. And we just continued our relationship. And a few, six months maybe later, I was approached by their team and they said, we'd love you to come give a workshop in, at Cannes Lions Festival. And so within that first year from that one kind of moment of, you know, Tech taking courage. up that space yeah. and courage this amazing opportunity came off the back of it. And I guess that was sort of the the evidence I needed quite quickly that, yeah, this does work and I do need to teach people how to do this, but I also need to walk the walk as well. And yeah, I love that. That is, yeah, it's still one of my priorities. And t right now at my events, when I host my events with the communities, at the end of the session, I tell that story and I ask people, do you want to stand up and share something that you've done. And it's this incredible, like quite overwhelming for me to watch where people who have never public spoken in their life will get up in front of a hundred people. It's very daunting. And pitch it themselves. It doesn't come naturally to everyone. And I always say to people like, if I'd have told you when you first walked into my event, you're going to stand up in front of all these people, they'd have gone, no way, I'm not sitting down. But because I do this workshop with them, I teach them everything, I get them all fired up, that by the end of the session, they do it. And one of the things I love about that is, I'm giving them an opportunity to put into practice what we've just spoken about and to overcome your like biggest fear. And people always remember fuck being humble for that. And I'm really proud of that being part of our DNA as an experience yeah. because I have so many people who come up to me like, it was your event that I spoke at that made me go on to do this thing or that I, I did it recently at a festival and a woman came up to me and went, I've just got a client from the crowd because I did that. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, you might have walked out of this room and not ever made that contact. So yeah, I'm really proud of that particular example and how I've brought it through to my business DNA because I think it's something that I set out to do. Yeah, Spotlight I amazing. I, I am inspired. And for someone who's not a natural public speaker, which a lot of people are, I mean, I guess you can't really simplify, but if you had to simplify, what's one advice you'd give them? Practice does make perfect. Yeah. And I don't even think you should strive for perfection because... We are not perfect as mm. human beings. And when we strive for perfection, we only ever make ourselves feel worse in the long run. But I would really recommend obvious things like making sure that you have a strong story. I often use visuals to help me remember the things that I want to say. 
But the best thing I've ever done is practice so many times. I used to get all of my... So you practice multiple times oh, as well? Oh, absolutely. As absolutely. a professional public speaker? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Whenever I'm giving a talk, I'll write it out. I'll ask my partner to sit down and listen to me for the next hour as I deliver this. And I still do that because, you know, the way that you piece a story together, the way you land a piece of information, how confident your voice sounds at different points, it can completely change if you've never practiced that before. And if you feel... Like you can handle it, even though I know it's really difficult, film or record yourself. And I still to this day hate hearing my voice back. But filming myself and listening to my audio has taught me a lot about the tonation in my voice. It's taught me a lot about the order in which I deliver things. And it's helped me with visual cues, the way that my body language is as well. I remember one event, I was knocking the table without realizing and it actually by watching the recording back, that allowed me to be more still when I'm presenting. So there's lots of things that we can do, but honestly, filming and recording yourself and watching it back is probably going to be one of the best things that will help you craft the way that you want to be seen. Yeah, I love this. This will be such an empowering message for a lot of people because the people in my business, a lot of people are scared of public speaking and they think there's a natural public speaker and there's an unnatural public speaker. But like, you know, hearing you, like who's a fluent public speaker, um, practice over and over again, that would be so empowering. Definitely. And one thing I always recommend people to do is go spend loads of time on TED Talks and have a look at all the range of people that do incredible storytelling and look at the different ways that people tell a story. You know, some people might open with a crazy statement. Like I actually went to a TED Talks recently and this woman said, the world is on fire and we're all about to die. And that's how she opened the speech. And then she went on to explain what she meant, but it was such a powerful, it drew us in, right? And so... To exactly to your point, there is no one one size fits all. I often do an activity in one of my workshops around public speaking on what do you want your public speaking style to be? Like, how do you want to sound? Do you want to sound like Adele and be really chatty? Do you want to sound like Barack Obama? And the way that he speaks is he says as few words as possible, but he makes every point mm. matter. Yeah, you know, he's there's such so, a good speaker. He's such a great speaker. But, you know, literally observe the things that you do and don't like in other people and figure out your own ingredients, your own secret recipe that makes it work for you. Don't feel like you have to emulate other people. And please don't see it as this scary thing that it, it will, you know, paralyze you in any way. It's one of those incredible skills. And the sooner you learn how to have uh, experience it and deliver it, the the better results I think you'll see in your career. Yeah. And networking is another scary thing. And you mentioned earlier, like when you were 25, you were just going out and networking on your own. That's a very scary thought for a lot of people. And I personally hate networking. Like <laughs> I just stand in the corner, find, find that one person I know. But what's your approach to networking and what are some of the tips you'd give? So with networking for me, I always found it a really interesting experience because when I first started out, I assumed because I was such a confident person that I would just walk into every room and everyone would love me and I would sign lots of contracts and I'd get jobs and I'd get business cards. But what I learned quite quickly was it isn't the loudest person in the room wins. And it's actually much more about being strategic and learning about other people. I often try and explain this to people who class themselves as introverts. They often say, oh, I can't network. And I'm like, you absolutely can. And in a way, you'll probably be better because the best thing you can do is ask the person you're speaking to as many questions as possible because then what you are able to do is present yourself back in the best possible way. 
if you speak too early, if you pitch yourself too early, then what ends up happening is you might actually like put that person off. They might feel like you're selling too soon. And actually with networking, one of the best ways to look at it is what's the next small step I want to take with this person? So do you just want to get their business card or do you just want to find out what their social media handle is? Or maybe you just want to add them on LinkedIn. It's unlikely that you're going to get investment in the room that night, or it's unlikely that you're going to get a job offered to you straight away. So my advice is like, think about that small step that you want that person to take with you and, you know, create and ask questions that will lead you in that direction. So at the end of the conversation, you might say, I've really enjoyed talking to you and it'd be great to connect further. What's your LinkedIn? You know, it doesn't feel too intrusive or too salesy, but you're still directing it in the way that you want it to go. But definitely don't feel like you have to be born a networker because it's complete. In fact, it's one of the, the myths that I bust in my book. I say, nobody is born a networker. It is something you have to perfect it's a skill and it's something that you have to figure out what your version of that is. All of self-promotion is like this. You know, how do you want to present yourself? What narrative do you want to have? How do you want to engage with other people? All of that's down to you. But again, just like public speaking, I wouldn't want people to fear it because I often remind people that every conversation we have, and I read this in the book by Robert Poynton, uh, he said, every conversation we have is improvised. And I think it's a really powerful reminder. If you ask me a question and I reply, I have no idea what you're going to say next. We don't. We're not mind readers. So we've got to treat networking in the same way that we do just having a conversation with a friend. We never know what someone else is going to say, but it shouldn't intimidate us to start that conversation. Yeah, yeah. just be intuitive about it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's set an example. For instance, let's imagine this is like 2020 when you first started the business and I mean, assume it's not COVID and we met at a networking event and maybe you wanted an opportunity to ask her to me, how would you approach me? What would be your opening line? So let's say I wanted to partner with you on a brand campaign. My first thing I'd do is sort of introduce myself. I'd be like, hi, how are you? Depending on the setting, I often tell people to do research before they get into the room. So let's say we're at an entrepreneur's event about women in leadership and my top tip is go onto Google News, type in entrepreneurs, women in leadership and see what articles, see what things come up so that when you're talking with people and you're making small talk, you've got things that you can reference and you can say, oh, did you see that Forbes article about the top 100 entrepreneurs? It was amazing to see that person in it. Or, you know, you've got a bit of context that you can talk about so you don't feel like you're stumbling over nothing. But once I've introduced myself, I'd very quickly go into asking you questions. So how long have you been running the business? How do you work with external partners? Do you work on brand partnerships? What are some of the goals you're currently working towards? Um, What's been a really successful project you've worked on this year? Again, without it sounding like an interview, I'd obviously try and make it quite casual and, and informal. But it's through those questions that let's say you say, oh, one of the things we're really focused on is trying to grow in um, the Asian market. I could then go home, pull together a proposal or reference some of the things I've done where I've worked with my clients on doing that. So you can't do that without the answers and without knowing the person. So it really is about getting to know a person in the same way you would a friend and gathering that information so that you can, like I say, present yourself back in the best possible way. Yeah. 
That's such good advice. And tell me briefly about the framework of fuck being humble for people that don't know about that brand. In terms of the business model. Yeah, in terms of the business model and what are like some of the pillars that you preach. It's actually very timely because I've been working on a complete website update. So there are three parts to my business. So business to business, employee training and development. So that's where I'll go in and run talks, workshops and motivational speeches that really try and engage, empower, uplift and reignite that spark in your employees to want to take charge of their career, to want to see great results, but also to work with their teams in a more effective way. That's actually where the predominant part of my business is. It's where I get a lot of opportunities. The second part is business to brand. So I do a lot of brand partnerships. We've worked together before, yes. which has been great. Yeah, and the team have absolutely loved it. Oh, no, but, you know, and, and I love working with brands that have similar missions, similar um, initiatives and values. That's always been something that's super core to, to my brand. So that will be some anything from creating a bespoke event experience or it might be consulting a brand. So I'm consulting Kerastas, one of L'Oreal's brands, on how we can close the gender gap amongst young women. So that's a big three-year brand partnership I'm working on. Or it might be content creation for socials to raise awareness of a product or new thing that that brand is working on. And the final section is sort of like B2C. So that's me hosting community events, releasing digital products, my book, online courses. So that's sort of the three different areas that I work in. And it's been really nice to see them evolve over time. But as a founder, one thing I would love to share and just say is that having multiple ways to connect with a B2B, well, business to business, business to brands and business to consumers has undeniably helped my business survive at different points. And the best example I can give is in 2020 when my business, uh, I was trying to, you know, I'd set up all of these talks ready to deliver a corporate talk. As soon as the budgets got cut and as soon as there was no budgets available to have me speak, I relied heavily on the B2C audience that I'd built. And actually that was a big learning to me is if you can have multiple different audiences that you can sell to at different times or you can work with at different times, that helps to ensure that your business can consistently stay afloat and can keep growing. The big risk that we have often is people only focus on one audience and only that. So whenever I'm giving business advice or I'm helping entrepreneurs with launch their own ideas, I often remind them the sweet spot is being able to target different audience groups so that you never rely just on one, mm. especially dependent on how economic crisis yeah, that's is. such an interesting point I guess it's kind of like us having our own store and also selling through Selfridges yeah absolutely it's it's making sure that you're kind of ticking off all of those different areas um not to the point of overwhelm like you can't spread yourself too thin but it was definitely something that I was grateful to have spent the time investing and building during a time when you know spending was completely changing across various markets yeah. And you recently also launched a platform called This Might Help. Tell me more. So This Might Help is a platform that I've created to help people who are helping others. So one thing that I notice is there's a huge amount of support out there for anybody that's struggling with mental health challenges. But there's not a lot of support out there for the people behind the scenes helping their loved ones. So let's say that your partner has depression and you don't know how to talk to them. You don't know how to bring up the conversation. You don't know how to make them feel better. 
where do you as an individual go for support? And I did the research and I asked people, I said, if somebody opens up to you with anxiety or depression or any sort of mental health struggle, is there a go-to place that you're aware of? And so many people said, no, like I'm really struggling. I don't know where I can go. So having already supported a lot of people in my life through various different things and experiencing this myself, I wanted to create an online community and event series where we talk about how we can best support other people in our life. And at the moment, it's an Instagram page with lots of different tips, tools, books, podcasts, all of these different things that you can look at. The website is a great resource hub full of um, different things that you can learn, read about. And ultimately, it's just to ensure that there's a place that has 24-hour support when you need it, when you're helping someone else through something quite difficult. And that's been a really exciting new area completely because I'm not a mental health well-being specialist at all, and I don't claim to be. I kind of see my role in this this community is being a journalist. So I want to be researching. I want to find the answers and I want to make this content and this topic that can be extremely difficult as accessible as possible. Um, so often, you know, you have to pay for therapy. You have to go to coaching. You have to do all these things that for so many people, it's not an actual option. And I want to try and create resources and tools that are out there so that anybody can benefit from them so yeah it's a completely new world I've felt very out of my depth at different points but what I know I'm extremely good at is telling stories and helping to make positive change and that's really my goal with this this community so Steph you've built an amazing brand for fucking humble as well as for yourself what's the biggest mistake you've made along the journey so I don't know if this is a mistake I think it is but it's also been one of the benefits so I guess people always say you learn from your mistakes but I put a swear word in my brand and <laughs> you I, can't change that. You can't change that. There's no going back from that. There's no like shortening it down. Like people often say, can we say like flip being humble? And I'm like, no, like we, we're not adapting it. It it's, doesn't have the same it, connotation. It doesn't. It's either that or it's not. But what I didn't realize at the time, although it was very disruptive and it was, it was very catchy, um, I get blocked for advertising. So <laughs> I've never actually been able to put paid advertising on Instagram or Facebook or those channels because they block the swear word. How do you get around this? Well, what I can very confidently and happily say is that all of the growth, which is 150K followers online, is organic. That's amazing. Which not many people can say, which I'm extremely proud yeah. of as a founder. Um, you don't get around it, really. Uh, I guess the benefit for me is... I'm a public speaker. I'm always delivering events. I'm always speaking to new audiences. I'm, I'm in new crowds every week on the ground telling my message yeah. as opposed to relying on just showing up on social media, for example, or just being an online brand that, you know, you will hear me talking about yeah. my brand in the pub, at the dentist, um, anywhere I go, on a plane, like yeah. I am somebody will, who will... And as soon as I mention it, people want to know about it. So I guess from like... A sales performance and media buying perspective, not the I ideal kind of option having a swear word in your brand. So a quote that I actually talk about on this topic quite a lot is something I heard recently. It was actually in Stephen Bartlett's book from an interview that he'd done with Jane Warwand. And she said, you've got to be prepared to piss off 80% of people if you want to turn on the 20%. And it was so comforting reading that 
five years after building a brand that has obviously quite a provocative yeah. title. So I guess it's like, it's one of those things that it, it was unquote, unquote, maybe a mistake, but actually it's been the best form of advertising for my brand. And even though it can never be paid behind and, and for you're as long as... you're looking for a certain type of audience anyways. Totally. Right? But even, it was really interesting because when I originally came up with the brand name, so many of my friends were like, don't do it. You're going to alienate people. And I remember thinking, well, then they're not my people and I don't, I can't cater to everyone. But interestingly, the people you'd think I'd alienate is maybe shyer people, introverts, people who would just think that's not for me. They need this more than anyone. So actually, they're the ones that are advocating for me when I'm yeah. not in the room, not necessarily the loud, bullshy people that already buy into this. So I think it's, yeah, it was it was a risky choice. I'm glad I did it. But there are naturally, it has meant there's been a certain level of, of growth that I may not have been able to explore in the same way I would have done had I have had a maybe more neutral name. Interesting. And what's um, on your mind right now? So this is a really interesting question because there's obviously lots on my mind. I'm a, I'm a founder and I'm always juggling lots of thoughts. Something I've been thinking a lot about is how do I manage two brands at once being the face of them? And that's something that I've been speaking to different people about and mentors is as an entrepreneur, you will have a million ideas that you want to roll out. And when you build one business that you're very much the face of and you're very much integral to, what does the second business and the third business look like? And how do you not water and kind of muddy the perception of who you are yeah. and is it okay to have lots of interest in five different directions or do you need to have something that is more focused? And the answer that I'm getting from a lot of people, which is great, is that you can do both. And actually, to the earlier question that you asked me is, who is Steph as a brand? And that's sort of what I'm looking at at the moment is, who am I as a brand? And then how do I show up in the multiple businesses that I want to run? What are some of the ideas that you have or businesses yours? Can you disclose them? Oh, there's so many different things that I want to do. And they're very varying. Like, I don't necessarily think they're all great ideas, but I started to try and learn how to drive last year and I was terrible at it. And I honestly think there's an opportunity to flip the driving industry. So that's one of my ideas. I also think making tax and the process of doing your tax returns more enjoyable could be such a great idea. Like if fuck being humble were to do tax, what would it look like? And just making that extremely dry, intimidating process more accessible. That could be a really good extension. Though, well, this right? is it. I love the idea of, of supporting young girls, but I know that... Um, the name Fuck Being Humble won't slide. So I think I'm going to have to think of a sub-brand around that. There's a lot of things. I, I love the idea of working with people with disabilities as well and looking at ways to open up opportunities in that space. I'm sort of somebody that can very quickly be excited by lots of different ideas. Yeah, same here. And I like, but I like that. Like I, I like the thought that so many things do sim stimulate me and I get very... Um, passionate about all the things I could do. I think of anything, my worry is not how many ideas, it's how do I roll out all the ideas mm. I'd like to do. But it sounds like there's a common thread, right? It's all about social impact and making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. For me, accessibility, relatability, and relevance are like the key things that if somebody says to me, gosh, it was so easy to understand or hearing your voice made me feel like I wasn't alone or you've made something that I've never understood understandable, that for me is like three massive ticks and I feel mm. extremely 
um, grateful that, that yeah, it must be that's so the rewarding. Impact. Yeah, it is. And I think having worked in the advertising industry, I learned so much about storytelling. I absolutely adored it. But I also didn't want to sell people things they don't need. And now I guess I can very confidently say and happily say that the work that I want to send to myself around is is only hopefully going to do good. And what's next in the pipeline immediately? So I will be doing a lot of international travel, which I'm excited about. Where are you going? New York, for starters, Paris, um, Australia, and Amsterdam are all locked in. For public speaking. Public speaking. That's exciting. Yeah, really exciting. And I think for me, it's really interesting because these were all on my list in 2020, but they all couldn't happen due to international travel being banned. And I actually put on my kind of dreams list this year, you know, speak in New York, go to these places, like make it happen this year. And just through like organic opportunities, it has. And I don't know, there is something about, you know, writing out the dreams, speak it into existence and just saying it, you know, like saying I'm really interested in in going to Australia and maybe taking the movement out there and seeing what people around you say or, you know, people want to help you and people do want to open doors. Um, and I think you kind of have to verbalize what you're thinking so that you start to make it real. I think so often when it sits in our heads, it can just be locked away and feel like a distant thing. But when you start to tell people, no, this is what I'm thinking about doing, people start to check back in and be like, so you're still going to New York? And you're like, oh, shit, yeah, I, I do need to get on with that and I need to do it. So, yeah, international travel and and doing more speaking whilst traveling is has always been my dream because I love both of those things. And I think looking at new ways to help different audiences is something I'm doing with the definitely with foot being humble and with this might help I'm I'm really keen to look at longer form content pieces um which might be like documentary series or it might be audio documentaries or things where we do a deep dive I think a lot of the content I've done although writing a book was not a quick process but a lot of the content I've done with foot being humble is the talks and it's short form but I'd really love to explore yeah those longer form in-depth research pieces that that might have a, a longer term impact on yeah, society nice watch this space hopefully yeah. yeah to me on the surface you seem like an incredibly driven confident person do you ever need to fight imposter syndrome yeah absolutely i'm Tell i'm I, do, I probably shouldn't say it on the podcast but i'm thinking about writing a second book and i'm literally trying to find every excuse as to why i shouldn't be doing this and it's funny it's because it's not it doesn't come naturally to me so nobody ever said you were good at writing or it i don't i i do like coming up with content and shorter form but that it is a it is hard mm. to put pen to paper and to yeah. write even after two chapters, even, even after, after you've it, three like years later book. and actually i think it's it's the like naivety sometimes works in your favor so when you go into something you've never done before, you're like, this is hard and this is scary, but I'm doing it. When you go into something that you've done before, it was quite hard and you're trying to do it again with maybe, you know, even more exposure. Like I was much smaller when I wrote the book. I had like 2000 followers. I, you know, I was, I was really proud of what I was doing, but I was still on that growth stage. Whereas I feel like I've got a very engaged community. I've got built up a, a reputation. And, and again, with that absolutely comes doubt. So yeah, I do massively feel that. And the same, even when I'm public speaking, like I'm extremely uh, comfortable with what I deliver and the words that I'm going to say. And I, I don't even really need to look at my slides anymore. I can very 
um, aware of what I need to say and how how I want to come across. But if you put me on a stage with like my icons, I would be absolutely like sweating profusely and so nervous about it and thinking, what am I doing here? Why why am I here? But I, I read a book recently called The Confident Mind and it's a brilliant book. And in it, they talk about um, optimists and how optimists never see themselves as the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that narcissist? <laughs> but no, what they're saying in a positive <laughs> yeah, way yeah. is that, um, you know, rather than being like, oh, I'm an imposter, it's like, oh, this is scary, but this is how everyone feels, you know? And, and I guess that's kind of like, possibly how I've I've done some of the big milestones is I am an optimist and I do often look on yeah. all of the best things that are going to come versus all of the negatives like I always try and outweigh the negatives with the positives that is my outlook yeah and for, so, for example so with writing the book I'm like okay I'm worried that this is not the same book as before and I it's a different format and I'm not sure if it's going to be great but then at the same time, I've got like 10 other reasons why I do this, because it's like, it's another book, which I'd be so proud of. It's an opportunity to develop my skills, to help people, to get to reach an even bigger audience, to challenge the way that we currently handle this problem that I want to write about. So, you know, like I, I think a lot of the time pessimists will focus on all the negatives. And what I mean is that optimists are more likely to let the positives drive them. And I think that's what I use in that situation. And when I was writing my book the first time, I had huge amounts of imposter syndrome. But the thing that I always say is the thing that got me through that was um, remembering that if I can help one person with this, it's bigger than my ego. And I think another thing on this particular example is that I never set out to be an author so the fact that these things are happening are amazing, but it's also okay that I'm not perfect at it. I think that's something you really have to like accept when you're doing something that you're that isn't part of what you thought you were going to no, be that, doing. That is such a strong message. It's like you don't need to be perfect. No, I'm not trying to be a New York Times yeah. bestseller. I'm not expecting this is going to be put on every reading list across the country. I'm, and that's okay. Like for me, it's a legacy piece and. It's about creating a piece of content that can be accessed, again, to way more people than if I'm just speaking in L London, right? And yeah, I think that focus on decentering myself and making it less about me and focusing on all the people I could help as a result of doing this um, is the advice I often give to people. And even as small as, you know, like if you want to speak up in a meeting and you're scared of doing that, if you're someone who is naturally introverted or naturally doesn't feel like you're a confident speaker... If you get up and do that, the other people around you who also feel like that will look at you and go, that's actually really amazing they did that because I know how much that scares them. And so it's like this knock-on effect that you have, not only for yourself, but I often ask people, like, do you think you're a role model? And they're like, absolutely no. And, I'm, and then I'm, I sort of say to them, so tell me something you've done that you're proud of. And, and I'm like, do you realize that lots of people would look at you as a role model for that? And I think we have to like see that that, discomfort that we're in is because it's taking us on that path to um show people that they too can achieve those things yeah, and I guess I that, that fits back in with the self-promotion messages when you do do something out of your comfort zone or scary and even if you don't think it's a great output or it's not the way tell people about it because people assume that things are easy for you 
in so many situations. And actually, when you tell the story of it, it hasn't been, it's actually been really hard and I've had to overcome lots of barriers, but I'm telling this story so that I can help other people who think that they can't do this. It's transformative. So definitely that, that outlook of decentering myself as the lead part to the story and focusing on helping others has been the thing that gets me through that. Yeah. what's one advice you'd give an early stage founder or someone who wants to do something like you often when I speak to early stage founders or people who have got lots of ideas they have so many ideas on how to bring this thing to life they get overwhelmed and it results in inaction so I have so many people that go I'm actually bored of myself for not making moves on this like I'm getting frustrated with myself and I think one of the things I often say to people is trick your mind to make it smaller so, you know, what is the very small thing that you need to do in naught to three months? What is the bare minimum you need to do to get this started? And then what can you add each month? Or what can you do in six months, 12 months, one year, two years? So a podcast, for example, I'd love to do a podcast for this might help. But currently, I've only got a thousand followers. So actually, it makes more sense for me to wait a couple of years so that if I want to get a sponsorship partner, I can say I've got more followers and, you know, so although that's something I really want to do, I'm going to put that in year two or year three. So just like be kind to yourself, pace your ideas. Don't think you have to do it all at once and be strategic as to when you do activate those great things that you want to do and trick your mind into making it smaller than it is. And, and a simple tip that I give to people to get going is just time-based activities. So you've got this big idea, you've got this business, What's something you can do in 10 minutes to get you closer to getting started? What can you do in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, two hours on the train? Like what, what are those little things that are going to get you going as opposed to needing everything to be, to be perfect? And one of my go-to phrases, which doesn't sound that inspiring, but it is meant to be, is what's your it will do version? So when we build a website, for example, we're like, I want it to be all singing and dancing. I want videos. I want a blog. I want all of these great things. When actually the bare minimum you need is like an about me, a demonstration of my work and a contact page. Yeah. So and start, that's called minimum viable product. Exactly. Right? right. So start, start small and then keep adding those layers because you're going to be working on this for a long time. Right. The need to be perfect is what holds us back so often. And you can never really be perfect in anything because if you're a perfectionist you'll always tell yourself there's room that you could be better so the art is really just starting now but making it feel less intimidating by doing small time-based tasks and actually sort of having a limit of your perfectionism as to how much you let that dictate whether it's fully ready or whether it can work for now and I'll keep adding to it. Yeah, you're so right. That was such practical advice. Thank you so much, Steph. That no, was so you. insightful, so useful, and so inspiring. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to chat. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.